privilege of being an interim pastor who is of age is that it affords me the opportunity to return to some of the old Bible studies I may have preached in the past with a new perspective. Maybe a little clarity. Like this morning's text that begins a section in the book of Genesis from chapter 37 through chapter 50. 13 chapters about the story of Joseph and his family. And today we will begin a three-part series on the providence of God using this story of Joseph and his family in Egypt as a way for us to understand a little bit about how God's providence may be with us even now. It's really one of the most powerful stories about fate and fortune and family in the Bible, and one that points to God's providence at work in ways we do not always see, but only until we are able to look backward are we able to catch a glimpse of it. Just like every great novel forces us to wait for the ending of it to see how all the pieces and the characters come together for resolution. Let us pray. Oh God, we give thanks that we can proclaim the word you gave Isaiah that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, you say, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Amen. So this is a long first reading, so you need to put on your listening ears and try to be attentive. Beginning in the first verse of chapter 37, Jacob, who was also named Israel, he got his new name after wrestling with, with God, presumably at the river Jabbok. God renamed him Israel, which means the one who wrestles with God. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed. That was the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his older brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. He's a tattletale. Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he had been born to him in his old age. He was actually, he was actually born to the wife he loved the most, Rachel, who he had to pay for with Rachel's father Laban by first marrying Rachel's sister Leah, as well as other ways of paying and Rachel died after giving birth to Joseph's brother, Benjamin. And so Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him after all that loss. 
And so he made for him an ornate robe, the robe of many colors. And when his brothers saw it, that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were out binding sheaves of grain in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of this dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers, listen, I had another dream and this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Then Jacob said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are out grazing the flocks near Shechem, so I'm, I'm gonna send you out to them. Okay, very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. In other words, continue to be the tattletale. So he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. And when Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. But when they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben, who's the oldest child, heard this, he tried to rescue Joseph from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. <clears throat> Don't need to shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this in hopes of being able to rescue Joseph later and take him back to his father. So when Joseph got to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern which was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay hands on him after all. He is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed because there was a price in it. 
So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver, and the Ishmaelites took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there, where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood, and they took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Is this, is this your son's robe? Jacob recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob rent his clothes, tore his clothes, and put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. This morning's story about Joseph and his family begins our journey, which I hope will help us discover some milestones on the road of our faith so that we might catch a glimpse of the providence of God as we go. However, that road leads down may, may not be, may it, it will not be found by Google Maps. In fact, it's not even a road yet. For the road we are on has not yet been traveled until we take it. And then only in our walking and living down this road by leaning into the future before us and going down this road will we, through the lens of faith and hope, see the hand of God's providence in our path. But again, behind us. The path which will reveal who we are and whose we are and that will reveal the way we have taken as the way we must go. As I look back in my own life through the eyes of faith, some with more faith than others sometimes, I have been able to see at least a little God's presence and providence through the twists and turns and pitfalls and successes and joys and heartaches that I have experienced along the way. And I look back with that in great gratitude, for it has given me strength knowing in hindsight that God was there, not always in the present, but in hindsight. Usually in the present, we are blind to all this, and we so easily fall into Macbeth's soliloquy, 
Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. I've been there. I suspect all of us in some point in life have too. This story, however, refutes that life is a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing, but instead it is a tale, tale told by a community of faith who have come to see that God's hand of providence had guided them through their journey. Now before we go into this too deeply, some definitions might be helpful. When I say providence, I don't mean fate. They're two completely different words. Providence means literally to see ahead, pro meaning before, and vidence, providence, from vide, the word for see. It's the root for vision, visible, evidence, provision, prudence, providence. And the one who sees ahead is not us, you see, but God. God sees ahead but does not control the road that we will take as we go forward. Sees ahead but does not stop us from doing stupid things. Sees ahead and provides for us in inscrutable and mysterious ways the provisions that we need to make it through whatever road we have to endure. all the while giving us freedom to choose which way we're going to go. Fate would say, there is no choice. The gods of fate, be it Zeus or Janus in Rome, all the gods of fate will determine our way and our outcome and all that goes with it. We have been fated by it. It is the root of the word fatalist. Often I'm sure that I'm fated that my luck will change. After three putting three out of the first seven greens last week, I knew that fate would change and I would not three putt again. But providence overrode that and came for me to see looking back that I had not practiced putting enough. It's not fate that caused it. It was my own road I had taken. We are not pawns on a board of life being moved by the gods at their whim. And neither is or are we fated by luck or chance. The right number of the money ball is not going to come by fate. If it comes at all, it's only by luck. And just as so, belief in physics and biology and evolution and genetics, as powerful as they are, is not the only cause and effect in the universe for if it is, then that is fated too. 
So we live somewhere between a God who controls everything, like fate or predestination, which I don't believe in, or just sits back after creating everything and and watches, letting us go do all that we do and live the lives that we live without any intervention at all. Between those two things, the Bible points to providence. And in that providence, God never pigeonholes us, but instead takes what it is that we give him to work with and inspires and enlightens and cajoles and strengthens and calls, but never controls us to act according to his will. So this morning's passage, in a nutshell, Jacob loved Joseph more than his sons, even though he was the twelfth son and a tattletale. Joseph, Joseph gave him the coat. It, it lifted him up in royalty, for that's what the kings would wear, this coat of many colors. To make matters worse, Joseph was a dreamer. Status quo hates dreamers. It wants things to say the same. The brothers had their power and their place. And Joseph walks up and tells them about this dream when all of a sudden now he's in their place and they're bowing down to him. They hate dreamers. And they hated him for good reason. He's a spy. He's a narcissist. He struts around in his robe like a peacock. He wants to do everything he can to steal steal the blessing from all the brothers. So for good reason, when the caravan comes by after choosing not to kill him, they sell him off to the Ishmaelites. And he ends up in Egypt as a slave of Potiphar. In the meantime, they take the coat, put lamb's blood on it, show it to their father Jacob, Thinking he had been eaten by a wild animal, he goes into a grief and mourning period, he said, that will last the rest of his life. And that's how that part ends with this teaser. But meanwhile, the Ishmaelites sold Joseph when they got to Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's captain of the guard. In other words, he's not dead after all. I love this story because it starts pretty much the same way all hours start, that is to say, with family life. Love and caring, playing favorites, dysfunction, jealousy, envy, and deceit, all of it part of the family. And it ends, it ends with these brothers fighting, plotting, the father hurting, wondering what will come next. It's written for us. It's for our time, because we are all faithful believers in God, I hope, but who have come to struggle and wrestle like Jacob at the river Jabbok with the God that we have been told we have. And the God that we have been told that we have, that we grew up with, is not the God that we see 
now, I suspect. Like, God will always protect us if we believe in him. Like, everything happens, every single thing happens according to God's will. Like, if I pray hard enough, I will get what I want and need. Like, God is a loving and benevolent Father who will always watch over us. But then life happens. Loss or trauma or the thing that comes that blows all our old religious thoughts and ideas out of the water and we are left wondering where this God went, struggling with our faith, and so we turn to this story in Genesis. No, the old answers don't work here. For them who wrote it, nor for us. I overheard a man recently give witness that he was, he was saved by God's providence. Saved when, when his wife finally got sick and tired of his drinking and left him along with the children and he bottomed out. He made his way to AA, he said. God's hand led him there, and there he found not only sobriety, but Jesus. It's a great story. I love those stories. But I'm a little bit skeptical, I have to be honest, about such confessions. They leave me wondering, why did God's hand lead him into the mess of his life to begin with if God's hand led him out of it? Why didn't God just lead him into that place to begin with if God was leading every step of his way? Think how much less hurt and grief there would have been. The point is that providence itself warns us about these old religious absolutes and certainties and that belief in God will determine our path and our outcome. Instead of such predeterminism and predestination, providence promises us that God may not cause the events, get this, but will use them like a gazillion Lego pieces for the building blocks of the kingdom to come. I cannot believe that God's hand of providence sent a fire to Maui, killing 100 people, burning down 2,000 structures, making it the deadliest wildfire in U.S. history. I cannot believe that the hand of God pushed that Ford Explorer my family was riding in to make it roll over three times. It was physics. The physics of a forest waiting, just waiting to ignite as prophetically they have been warned. And the physics of a badly engineered card that was not only prophetically, but by plenty of evidence poorly made. It was not the providence of God that did this. But by God's providence, we pray that these tragedies may help convince us 
that we do need to do something about climate change. And we also need to do something about poorly made cars that are marketed deceitfully. So here's the third option. Either God determines all things or there is no God and all of life is just sound and fury or what this Joseph story will reveal when we come to the end of it. And it will show that God gives us freedom and agency and choice to dream and to act, to sin and to repent, which is what it means to be human and made in the image of God, freedom and choice. And God also gives us laws and rules in the Bible to live by, and also a community of faith to help us provide, to help provide for us what we need, our provisions to navigate the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that inevitably come. It's almost as if God is in it with us like a divine dance, not controlling all the levers like the wizard behind the curtain, but dancing together with us to, to the tune of faith, hope, and love and, and God knowing how the dance will end, but not knowing how the dance will get there, but willing to be in it with us as we go. And if, if you want a definition for what it means to say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus Christ, that's what it says, that God has chosen to become part of the dance with us. Paul came to see this in Romans. The providence of God being in the midst of us, yet us not recognizing that providence. We want more from God. We want God to fix it. We want God, we, want, we don't want God to dance. We want God to fix it. But God is crucified instead. And Paul came to see, understand, and, 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 and see clearly in a new way for him what that means. So he wrote, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is providence. If we don't see and believe this now, I think by the providence of God, sooner or later we will. We just have to wait for the story to end. Amen.